This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Fence Physio. I am your host, as always, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist in the Maryland area. I am bringing you a special episode today brought to you by my physical therapy student, rising third year Christian Barnes, Marymount University, soon to be grad, hopefully. And how are you doing today, Christian? Things are things are going well. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to be here. A uh, pleasure to be on the show. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, um, what topic are you bringing us today? Yeah, um, the topic that we're going to be covering today is the prevalence. It's a prevalence study of chronic pain after surgical repair. And uh, just a subtopic of that would be just discussing the predictors of chronic pain after surgical repair. Okay, so with that in mind, we might need to do some vocab. We don't have Dr. Owens today to do our vocab section, so we're going to have to survive on our own. So when we're defining um, what we uh, what we term a predictor, okay, um, this is a topic that we have uh, had some discussion around, but for our audience, Christian, can you talk to us about what a predictor is when it comes to surgical outcome? Yeah, so um, a predictor is uh, something that provides information on an associated variable regarding a particular outcome, right? We kind of just said that. So, for example, um, drinking before a certain age increases the risk or predicts the possibility of future alcohol abuse. So the predictor would be drinking before a certain age, um, for an example, if we were to say a predictor. Is that a predictor you have any experience with? Remember, your teachers are listening. (laughs) No. (laughs) All right. So... What did you find when it comes to the prevalence of post-operative pain after joint arthroplasty? Yeah, so um, before I get into that, I'm actually going to tell you why I chose this topic. Sure, absolutely. Love to hear it. Yeah, so... Reasons behind your decision-making. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, I think, and I think, uh, uh, you know, maybe a practitioner would feel the same way. So, like, I was in the clinic um, and noticed a a large amount of patients uh, that were suffering from chronic pain of a specific joint after a surgical repair of that same joint, which was causing pain preoperatively. Um, This challenged kind of my Cartesian model of thinking. Um, If the pain generator being the knee, the hip, the lumbar disc was removed and replaced by a titanium or other non-organic object to remove pain, why could or why would or why could pain persist? Well, my ideology was challenged even when I was mobilizing 
uh, or my ideology was challenged even further when I was mobilizing a patient, simple A to P glide, that had a prosthesis in the knee. Um, and that simple A to P glide caused pain relief. At this point, I'm questioning everything I know about pathoanatomy, biomechanics, and surgical repair. And, you know, probably despite the surgical community, I began my crusade against joint replacements and started looking into how prevalent chronic pain is after surgical repair. Kind of the background. And so my hypotheses were that this is actually pretty prevalent. Um, I, I hypothesized because I, partly because of my crusade <laughs> that it was very, very ineffective at addressing chronic pain. So greater than 50 cent, 50% of individuals, this is my hypothesis, my primary hypothesis, suffer from chronic pain after surgical joint repair. Um, my secondary hypothesis would be uh, uh, the main predictors for post-operative chronic pain after sur surgical joint repair would be preoperative obesity and sedentary lifestyle and other metabolic comorbidities, such as diabetes, so on and so forth. Um, okay, so to clarify, the uh, surgical repairs that you were looking at, or what cohorts of patients were you particularly interested in testing your hypothesis with? Yeah, so specifically, I kind of drilled down into uh, total knee arthroplasty and looking at uh, this specific group generally associated with osteoarthritis or after osteoarthritis um, in terms of a chronic. So this is not traumatic injury, then repair, and then chronic pain after. I think that's a little bit different. Um, this is also not for a young population generally, um, though I think there are applications that we can draw from this conversation to that population. But primary research is with um, individuals that are, you know, advancing in age. Okay. Yeah. So how'd you go about looking at this question? Yeah, so um, I was just looking quickly at the um, prevalence of different... I started off pretty broadly in looking at just surgery in general um, and looking at seeing, you know, is there, is there, uh, is there enough information on uh, surgery in general to determine if there is chronic pain, uh, how much chronic pain people suffer after surgery, and especially replacements. I found a lot of surgery. There's a lot of surgery on the back, on the neck, and all these uh, different areas of the body, the shoulder, everything. Um, and I kind of fell on the knee because it was most aligned with my interests, and it kind of, you know, uh, it, it, it fell in line with even that kind of visceral experience that I had uh, mobilizing that patient's knee. Um, and, you know, testing out my hypothesis, just looking at certain prevalent studies, a bunch of systematic uh, uh, reviews and meta-analysis and population studies that are just looking at, is there a problem with prevalence, of, or is there a prevalence of chronic knee pain after a surgical repair? And just to be quite honest, there's not really that much of a problem with, uh, for the majority of people, um, for surgery or for chronic pain after surgical repair. So surgery is actually very effective at addressing chronic pain. Um, and again, that's just for the majority of surgeries. So in your literature review, you're looking at 
uh, meta-analyses and systematic reviews of um, kind of long-term outcomes after orthopedic surgeries. And specifically, we went to total knee arthroplasty. If you had to guess, of the studies you were looking at, how many of them used pain as a long-term outcome? Well, so I think uh, a lot, all of them. All Probably of them. all of them. Fantastic. <laughs> I figured as yeah. much because pain is pain, and pain is all we seem to care about when it comes to research. Okay, and when we're talking about the length of those uh, outcomes, when we're talking about when they were assessed, what, what, what did you find as far as how long those were assessed, you know, as far as how far post-operatively were they followed out or how frequently, or how did they assess pain? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the, um, so for certain, like, observational studies that were done that I, I was reading about, uh, they would go into a hospital system, find the, and specifically, like, research hospitals and whatnot that have performed these orthopedic conditions get about I, one study from uh, Vicki Wild, uh, who's also like kind of, this made it, it seemed like it's a, her, her thing is to talk about uh, chronic pain after surgery. But she uh, um, <clears throat> was uh, going to the hospital, took about 900 patients from a population um, that have just received a TKA and kind of went through, uh, you know, after three months, just asking them a survey, uh, how is their pain? And kind of just tracking it after three months. They did a few follow-ups, not too many. Um, that's just one observational study. But the other meta-analysis and the uh, systematic reviews were looking at what is in the literature right now from early as three months, because we're talking chronic, mm -hmm. um, and then all the way up to, you know, six years. Oh, six years. So, yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Six years of pain. Yeah, seriously. Sounds like uh, physical therapy school. Exactly. So, Twice for me. That, that, <laughs> that aside. Right. Um, the other way is we talk, I was curious about how we assess pain. So we, usually we hear about visual analog scale for pain, mm -hmm. the VAS, right? Mm -hmm. um, we can give a visual, you know, like measurement thing, have the patient tick the box on the line and use that as a measurement of pain. But probably the most commonly used one that we use in a clinical setting is verbal, right? Mm -hmm. So we ask patients, hey, you write your pain on that scale from zero to 10. Now, when we're asking pain, do you think it would change if we're measuring over a long term, if we chose to be the question, what's your pain right now versus what is the worst pain you've felt in the past number of days or what is your pain on average been do you think that would change in this population are these people that experience <clears throat> wide variations in pain or are these people who experience maybe more consistent pain what are your thoughts yeah definitely so i i think um that's a great question i think uh we only give great questions that's, here. that's a good point i mean we're all about great questions here um i think a, a big Thing that uh, I, I found in a specific review again by uh, uh, Vicky, Dr. Vicky Wild, uh, she was saying that there is a presence of chronic pain. The pain doesn't necessarily change. Um, it's it's unfavorable. So after three months, mm -hmm. up to six years, um, but. Uh, the pain isn't necessarily increasing in severity. So they don't really talk too much about severity. 
um, with uh, chronic pain studies. They just say, is there a presence of pain that's unfavorable enough to kind of report it after three months? Which brings in a whole different issue, right? So, um, and, I, and I think is something that, you know, in research that we should address, like, is because if someone's reporting, let's just to use uh, the, like, numeric scale, like two out of 10 pain um, after three months, that's theoretically chronic pain still. Um, it might be enough to kind of bother them, but it's not, you know, something that limits function potentially, depending on what the function is, I guess. But so I, I think they, they... Right. So that would be another entirely different question yeah. is, do people have function limited by pain? Mm -hmm post-operatively mm -hmm. in a chronic timeline, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is not a question that we addressed in that, this one, right? That is correct. <laughs> We're just talking about specifically patients reporting chronic pain. So this does not need to be measured objectively, and that's yep. okay. Mm -hmm. um, we're just looking at, from a broad sense, chronic pain, mm -hmm. patient-reported pain after surgery. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what was prevalence? Yeah. Uh, how common was it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So interesting, too, just to kind of like throw a little plug in, um, orthopedic surgeries, fun fact, three time, almost three times more likely to have chronic pain after an orthopedic surgery than any other type of surgery. Isn't that just insane? Like, uh, well, whatever. Um, so my hypothesis was not correct, right? My primary hypothesis was not correct. My secondary, also not correct. Um, multiple studies have found that BMI or metabolic comorbidities, uh, does not play a significant role in chronic pain after surgery. And in terms of prevalence, um, uh, after TKA, it's about 10 to 34% of patients report unfavorable long-term pain outcomes. Um, so, you know, that's a significant amount of people. That's one in three people um, at most uh, are actually reporting pain. Um, unfavorable pain. Unfavorable pain, yeah. So, as opposed to the favorable pain. As, a, as opposed to favorable pain. I mean, we're not going to talk too much about that. We're going to try and keep it PG up in here. But, uh, <laughs> um, but that's, a, yeah, that's a, that's, I think that's a stark um, difference from what you're expecting. And I think that can cause a lot of, you know, um, even potentially guilt for the patient, potentially, a, a, you know, did I do something wrong? Why is why is my why is my body reacting this way? I was supposed to get this fixed. Um, what's happening? Right, and if Confused. only one in three, you know, which is the high end of what you found, mm -hmm. are experiencing this, then the likelihood is if they talk to one of their friends or family members and say, "Hey, how was your total knee replacement?" They're going to be like, "Oh, it's fine. I don't have any pain. I feel good." Yeah. And then, yeah, I can, I can understand that point that hey, patients are going to feel bad that they're feeling bad. And when you feel bad about feeling bad, <laughs> you feel worse. That, that's, de that's definitely accurate. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, I, think it, I think it also highlights something, too, with the individuals that were feeling unfavorable pain, that 33%, you know, um, about 7 to 20% of them were actually feeling moderate to severe pain after the replacement too. So there is a little bit of a, you, we do see an objective measure with that saying, actually, it's not just the small, you know, um, I have a rock in my shoe type pain. It's actually severe enough to uh, warrant some potential functional loss. 
Right. And oftentimes we worry about pain anchoring when it comes to the um, reported pain is well, well, maybe a patient hasn't experienced the worst of pain and that's why they're bad at grading. When they say 10 out of 10, but they've maybe never truly experienced the 10 out of 10, whatever that is, um, is often a critique we hear from other physical therapists. Well, somebody who's had a uh, knee arthroplasty has probably experienced a fair amount of pain because that is one of the conditions where opioid prescription is still indicated by um, many um, surgical practice guidelines, at least for a little while after surgery. Um, it may not be necessary based on some of the things that we are finding out, and it may not be always something that phys that patients need to fill, but I mean, it is something that opioids are still um, acceptable to be prescribed for, so they have pain. Yeah, definitely. And kind of going on to your earlier point, yeah, yeah. Um, there is a change in pain, um, especially acute, late, from acute to chronic stage. Mm -hmm. But uh, and it plateaus again around three to six months in that chronic stage. But uh, you know that that means that it's still occurring, <laughs> and that's a problem, I think, mm -hmm. and a problem that uh, physical therapists, you know, can potentially have a lot of play into. Addressing. Oh, so physical therapists can help change these outcomes. Oh. So if physical therapists can help change these outcomes, what would be a good word to describe physical therapy in the pain? Interesting. It seems like, uh, well, it just depends on are we the cause for the outcome or not. <laughs> I would gauge you, I would ask you to moderate your response, please. <laughs> exactly. So kind of going into moderation um, and moderator studies. Uh, a moderator variable is something that acts upon a relationship between two variables and changes its direction or strength. Um, for example, there's a relationship between time and seat at a job and salary earned. Um, that, that's, early, uh, that's a relationship. It's a, this is a hypothetical example, of course. But, however, it, a, a relationship is complicated by who is in the relationship or who's in seat, right? Mm -hmm. So gender specifically can modify how much an individual makes despite the time in seat at the job. Mm -hmm. uh, gender could be a modifier, right? If you're a male, you might make more money than a female. Um, and that can moderate the relationship. If we were talking about uh, a mediator, that's something different. It's like kind of like the middleman in between an independent variable and a dependent variable. Um, so a mediator is a specific way in which an independent variable impacts a dependent variable. For example, like one might find a positive association between note-taking and performance on an exam. Uh, the mediator for that, though, is the relationship, uh, the mediator for that relationship might be the number of hours studying for the exam. So you might take notes, a certain amount of number, a certain amount of hours might mediate how you do on the exam. How's that? How's that sound? I can I can get behind that analogy. So, when it comes to kind of picking apart between predictors, mediators, and moderators, sometimes they can be the same thing, Definitely. possibly, right? Sometimes they could be different. Um, so mediators have to have some kind of effect, a you know probably a dose-dependent effect on the mechanism by which we get to the outcome. So if we were to bring that back to your um, 
literature review here is that our outcome is not having pain, right, or having less pain, having less severe pain after having um, joint arthroplasty. Uh, what are some of our moderators? What are some of our mediators? And what are some of our predictors? Yeah, so it's a good question. You bring it up. Um, and just to sidestep a little bit, I'm going to talk about predictors first. Sure. Um, because I think I think if we can find predictors, we can address moderators, at least moderators, a little bit better um, in practice, uh, especially if they're strong predictors. Right. So if you change a predictor, will that change the outcome? Not necessarily. Unless the predictor is a mediator. Unless the predictor is a mediator. That is correct. That is correct. Or if it's a malleable moderator, you know. That, that's a possibility. Riddle me these questions three. Air the other side, you'll see. <laughs> exactly. Precisely. This is, uh, gets very complicated. I'm happy that uh, you know, I'm not an advanced statistician right now. Um, but in terms of predictors for chronic pain after replacement surgery, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest ones that I saw in literature is a number of pain sites outside of the surgical site. So, yeah, so chronic pain in other areas in the body um, actually increased your risk of having chronic pain in the knee. Okay, so if preoperatively your patient circles the entire pain diagram rather than the one patient who puts a dot on the joint they're having replaced, that's a predictor for having pain after surgery. Yes, yes, and it's a, it's a strong predictor. Um, mm. A lot of the researchers have, are linking this back to the mediator being central sensitization. Um, so if you can sensitize your nociceptive input um, too much, where a non-nociceptive response creates a nociceptive response um, too quickly or whatever, um, then that's, that's central sensitization. That becomes where things that aren't painful stimuli become painful stimuli. Allodynia. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's that <laughs> So maybe the patients who are more, have more global pain more likely to become allodynic after surgery. Yes. Fair enough. And that's a strong predictor. That is something we can definitely take into our practice and be aware of. Yes, definitely. Any other predictors? Of course. And to break it down just a little bit further, I think there's two more categories of predictors. One being a psychosocial aspect, uh, or psychosocial predictor, um, and then biological, clinical, or physiological predictors. So that's including modifiable or non-modifiable. Um, for a psychosocial um, aspect, it's, it's interesting to see uh, this currently, uh, you know, popping up in almost every single uh, review, um, literature, any research article that I was reading about chronic pain after surgical repair, depression is significantly correlated with chronic pain after surgical repair. So always my question when I hear that is that how can we differentiate the two? Because yes, there's a correlation, but I kind of have a hard time seeing it as a predictor because like if you have to get knee surgery, 
right? Because mm-hmm. you have all the other things going with mm-hmm. that. Couldn't that also just make you depressed? That's so true. couldn't the need for a joint replacement be a predictor for depression then? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think I think that's a great point. However, most of the studies that we're looking at were preoperative depression. So before even considering it. Okay. Uh, so that's a little bit more yeah. specific to say that preoperative depression makes you more likely for mm-hmm. postoperative pain. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, that's a predictor. Yeah, and so these these patients were uh, with worse worse anxiety and depression did lead to worse outcomes after TKA, uh, specifically with chronic pain. Um, the second one was kind of interesting for me: um, pain catastrophizing uh, for again for this is a psychosocial aspect. Uh, pain catastrophizing as a predictor is very negative for outcomes. Of course it is. It always is. Pain catastrophizing <laughs> is the worst. And I just am not surprised at all that it is the thing in here. And I'm just so sick and tired of hearing about it. Exactly. Exactly. I think you've got all of the magnification, magnification, rumination, and helplessness right there. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with pain catastrophizing, it is a negative psychological construct that has an exaggerated exaggerated negative orientation toward actual or anticipated pain experiences. Um, and the three categories that pain catastrophizing is broken down into are magnification. So saying, um, you know, I, uh, I can't, uh, I, I won't be able to do this because of my pain. Rumination being, I can only focus on my pain. Um, and then helplessness, the third, being nothing can I I won't nothing can help my pain ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm feeling helpless with the situation. And this uh, predictor had um, in a few different studies by different authors um, had uh, the largest effect on a level of preoperative pain um, that I was noticing um, specifically. And uh, yeah, so Lewis et al. in um, one of his studies in the studies in the predictors of persistent pain after total knee arthroplasty, which is a systematic review, identified that pain catastrophizing was the clearest predictor for chronic pain after TKA specifically. So, um, and this was uh, analyzed using the PCS or the pain catastrophizing scale, um, and a good a good uh, tool to have and to include in your clinical practice potentially. Um, Finally, because we only talk, we generally only talk about negative outcomes. Let's talk about a positive outcome. Positive, positive predictors. outcome. Positive predictors. That's the PP, as one would say. Oh, I thought that was Mr. Popper's penguins. Well, that's also that too. Um, uh, a big positive outcome, uh, positive predictor, um, would be resilience. Um, so, looking at uh, resilience is a positive psychological construct that encompasses positive environmental and emotional characteristics that allow an individual to overcome adversity. I mean, adversity is the big hot topic, especially as you're entering PT school and you get to uh, get asked how you've overcome adversity. Well, you know, they're trying to measure your resilience. Um, So this actually, uh, this psychosocial predictor actually had really good outcomes for post-operative knee function and general physical health undergoing TKA. And a lot of this was actually attributed to, you know, the amount of adversity that it would take to actually cause cognitive dissonance for a resilient patient. 
And I thought that was just so interesting. We always talk about cognitive dissonance as, uh, or at least I do, um, uh, as a, a way to, you know, create more resilience. But it's, it's almost as if the cognitive dissonance is uh, almost like a crutch to where if you took it away, then you don't, you know, you don't, um, you don't, you don't have a uh, good resilience anymore. Does that make sense? Probably not. Maybe I'm just talking out of nothing. <laughs> Sounds like you're having a bit of dissonance. A little dissonance. The, uh, There's a little dissonance self. there. <laughs> um, and then the the final uh, predictor um, that I was looking at was a uh, biological, clinical, or physiological that are modifiable or non-modifiable risks um, or predictors. And so for TKA, there's small, very small evidence support um, that if you are a female, you are at increased uh, risk of having uh, chronic pain after uh, surgical repair and if you're a younger age. And I think the younger age one is specifically associated with traumatic injuries um, so, and that's really the only, um, biological, clinical, or physiological predictors that I could find on that. But there's that. Sure. Um, obviously, uh, when it comes to using gender as a predictor effect, we tend to think of, well, gender is a bit of a cultural construct and that, you know, how um, we are brought up in our societies, whether our society be here in the U.S. or be somewhere else, um, people of different genders or non-genders are treated in different ways, and these can lead to all kinds of, you know, like, long-reaching effects. So I always take um, gender with a grain of salt because some of it may be modifiable because Mm -hmm. we could potentially change um, how... Um, females are treated in society, change expectations, change uh, participation in certain things, access access to resources, and maybe that changes one of these risk factors. Or maybe it doesn't, because maybe there is something biological about being biologically female that puts you at an increased risk factor for these things. It's kind of hard to parse that out, because there's no such thing as a place that doesn't have culture. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe Indiana, but <laughs> we'll leave them alone since Matt's not here to defend them. Uh, younger age, you bring up some good points there. Uh, it's a different reason for getting surgery, but it also kind of helps support when a lot of surgeons say like, hey, let's try to put this off a year. Let's try to put this off another year because if you're just a little bit older, the technology is just a little bit better and maybe it make it takes away one little risk factor or at least some amount of risk factor for you having persistent pain after surgery. So I think we can get on board with supporting the surgeons that sometimes say like, hey, can we try to conservatively manage this just a little bit longer? I don't think I have to sell that to physical therapists. I think they already want to do that anyway. Yeah, exactly. Hence my crusade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I think that kind of wraps up our predictors for it. And I think it'd be, you know, helpful to talk about clinical implications. What, what does this mean for people that are trying to practice? Good. Have you been trying to practice? I have been trying to practice. Without practice. your own license? Without my own license. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's uh, practice underneath someone else's practice. Okay. That's, that's kind of, it's like an umbrella thing, right? Sure. Now, what we're doing. Um, what, what I think this imp- 
implies is specifically, and I think probably the most important thing, um, is just how we counsel our patients on surgery. Um, I think we can give them good education about the what the risk factors are, um, especially if we're using um, a pain catastrophizing scale or a, a, a the PCS or the brief resiliency scale, like the BRS, to determine what a, what the possibility of uh, their outcome might be. I think it's a I think it's a very good thing to start to utilize those scales, um, especially as we as we see uh, increase in uh, knee osteoarthritis um, with uh, more boomers and everything like that. You know, there's always, more boomers. All, all the boomers They're being born. Well, I guess no more boomers <laughs> being born, but just uh, increased boomers in our. Uh, Physical therapy clinics. Yeah, okay. Um, That's a possibility. Yeah. So that brings up a good point is, hey, we can try to change expectations for patients. So if we understand what predictors are for different outcomes after surgery and a patient's asking, hey, what do you think about me getting the surgery? I do think it is within our scope of practice to say, hey, you know, I'm not your surgeon. I'm not going to tell you whether or not you should get surgery, but... If you have this factor and you have this factor, this means you're more likely to have a good outcome. Or if you have this factor and you have this factor, it means you're more likely to have a bad outcome. Sharing information that we understand could be helpful. But man, how helpful do you think it would be if you have a patient who's depressed, who screens positive for depression, or has been clinically diagnosed with depression, to tell them, hey, since you're depressed, you probably won't do as well post-operative with your pain. Yeah, not great. That just, that sounds terrible. Yeah, I'm use sure. tact. Use tact for sure. Don't don't uh, just uh, you know ruin your patient's life. But um, I can see how this can get very very gray really quickly. Um, but I think finally, um, but even even knowing that though, I, I will say though, even knowing that you are able to kind of use that information to potentially. You know, refer that patient out to potential to a mental health specialist, or so that would only be useful if uh, depression was a mediator or a moderator, right? Sure. Because if you changed it, sure. then it would have a change in the outcome. Whereas, do we know if it is a mediator or a moderator? The the answer to that is no. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't know. So if we change somebody's depression, does that change their outcome in pain? We'd love to know. So please, uh, audience out there, go ahead, try to change some of your patient's depression and see if that changes their outcome in uh, total joint arthroplasty. And we'd be very interested to learn more. I especially. <laughs> but that's all Asking I for a friend. Yeah, seriously. Okay. So... Christian, what is the most valuable thing you learned from this experience, not from the literature that you reviewed, but from the process of performing a literature review while in a clinical affiliation, your first full-time clinical affiliation as a physical therapy student? Yeah, I think, um, honestly, in, in this process of gathering literature and everything like that, I think one of the biggest things that I learned is trust other licensed healthcare providers. Um, you should not, <laughs> I mean, they have a lot of, uh, credibility behind them. I think we should really lean on them to, for their advice, um, whether it be mental health advice or whether it be, you know, surgery, like 
you, you are able to trust them. They have just as rigorous testing, if not much more rigorous testing and research that they have, um, and much more rigorous schooling potentially, um, than we have. So it, we shouldn't always, I think I really did learn a lot in my crusade that uh, I, I, was, I was wrong. I was wrong in my crusade against surgery. Yeah. I think that um, some PT programs are definitely moving towards cross-professional or, you know, interprofessional education, which has kind of been a buzzword in PT professions for a while, is let's try to educate some of our students in similar settings. So I took an anatomy class with medical students. My PT program now has interprofessional classes with occupational therapy students, with nurse practitioners. When we get a better understanding of the kind of people that are students in these other fields, what they're learning, what they're understanding, it goes both ways. Now there's a group of physicians that graduated from Indiana University School of Medicine that have a, maybe a little bit more respect for the amount of anatomy knowledge that physical therapists have because they watch them go through the same class as they did. So I think that is valuable, a good thing to learn as a student. Now also as a student, completing one of these projects what is the best piece of advice you can give to other physical therapy students that are creating a similar uh, product to what you've just created for us here um, to refine that research question, to come up with a good um, and very helpful resource that now other uh, staff physical therapists and other students will be able to use? Yeah, um, so in terms of just approaching uh, research in general, I think it's important to do a little self-reflection first and try and figure out where your biases lie um, before you start diving into research. Um, because if you have biases, they will inevitably lead you towards that bias. Um, if you are aware of those biases, I think it might be a little bit more fruitful of a uh, research um, because you're able to say, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of trending too much towards my bias right here. And even if your bias might be correct, like really try and find um, things that are uh, kind of challenging your biases and saying uh, you, that you're wrong. I think, that's, I think that's always a good approach to like starting something like this, a project like this. Um, also just practically just start earlier in your clinical <laughs> rotation so you don't have to do it all in the, the the night before i will pretend i didn't hear any of that I, and uh yes i would agree with that in saying that fantastic find where one of your biases and see if you can prove yourself wrong i think that's a great basis for your project or take one of your uh preceptors one of your mentors take one of their tried true tightly held beliefs and go after it with the mindset of can I prove this wrong because if you go into literature review of how can I prove myself right you're always going to find the resource that supports your bias you're going to read it you're going to be like this is great this is fantastic literature they did this study entirely right the methodology was flawless the patient population was wonderful and this is the greatest piece of research ever I think a little bit better use of your time Go into it with a mindset of, I want to try to find everything that can prove this wrong. And if you cannot find anything, if you find nothing that strongly you know, goes against what you're saying, that you're going, to find, you're going to find a little bit more broader information. You're going to have a better understanding of the topic. And if you find opinions, if you find evidence, if you find literature that is against what you believe, then you're going to really come away better 
prepared for your own practice in the future. And I think I just add on to that really quickly and to knowing that our biases are very pernicious, like speak to other people about this, speak to people that are much smarter than you. Um, and they will shatter your biases really quickly. Um, so make an effort to really step out of that comfort zone and talk to other people that are much smarter than you and get them to humble you. Fantastic. We won't be inviting anybody that is smarter than us onto <laughs> on the fence physio. So that goes to everybody that's potentially listening to this. So again, thank you very much, Christian, for this wonderful presentation. It was a valuable learning experience and will be a valuable learning experience for all two to three of our listeners of this podcast. Okay. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of On the Fence Physio. Again, signing off, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist. Have a great day.